Well, hey, friends, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Jez Field. This is episode number six, in which I caught up with mum of three, author and friend of mine, Rachel Wilson. As I think you'll discover, Rachel has a fantastic gift of wisdom and insight, is a gifted communicator, and yet is a lot of fun and incredibly down-to-earth and humble as well. Together with her husband, she co-wrote the popular book, The Life You Never Expected, in which she walks us through her journey into parenting and learning how to thrive with two children with special needs. I think that Rachel is a gift to the church, and I'm hoping that our conversation encourages you and enables you to thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. Before we dive in, I just want to remind and encourage you to subscribe and share this podcast wherever you can. That way you'll be kept up to date and informed about all the podcasts as and when they come out. If you want to reach out and say hi to me for whatever reason, you can do so by emailing podcast at newgroundchurches.org. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, well, here we go. Let's sit back, grab a cup of coffee and enjoy today's conversation with Rachel Wilson. Well, Rachel, the question we're opening with at the moment is uh, tell us something either about yourself or life and leadership that you've learned over the past six months. So I think probably whatever I've learned, and maybe that's still crystallising <laughs> at the moment, um, is probably based upon around how weak I am and how lawish, how naturally lawish my heart is and how I need the grace of God more than I have perhaps ne- realised before. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that. What do you mean? What, the lawish yeah. bit, yeah. I think I think I, I think it's Luther that says uh, about you fall off the horse one way or the other, yeah. only to get back on it and fall out the other way. And uh, I think the way I fall off the the horse in the gospel is often towards um, being legalistic or lawish or thinking perhaps that God's love for me depends upon my performance rather than on the performance of Jesus. And um, and that that works okay, perhaps if you feel like you're performing well. Yeah. Whereas in lockdown and the pressures of the last few months, uh, when you realise that you can perform even less well than you'd yeah. expected, um, suddenly you have to become more aware of the grace of God, or just be crushed over under your own sense of weakness, really. Yeah. But um, Dane Ortland's "Gentle and Lowly" has been um, salve for my soul yeah. in the last few months. I mean, it's been it's been such a difficult, difficult six months. I imagine um, not more so for people with children, young children. Um, presumably, all three of yours have been at home with you for the majority of the time, or were your, were your elders too still able to go to school in any capacity? Yeah, we had them all at home for eight weeks. Um, Andrew was kind of attempting, my husband was attempting to work from home. Um and then I hit a bit of a wall around May half term and thankfully our older two are in special schools. I had a conversation uh, with their head teacher and thankfully they went in for two days a week, which was huge really in terms of rebalancing family life. Mm. And God gave, the God was um, so kind in terms of the timing of the phases they were in, just worked for being inside more. Um, but yet over the course of a few weeks and months, it wears you down like anybody, like any mum listening any parent listening probably. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned your, your two eldest are in special schools, which is a large part of the subject of your book, A Life You Never Expected. Um, do you want to give us a brief summary of your book for those who haven't read it and some of the unique challenges or particular challenges that you face as a mum over lockdown with children with special needs? Yeah, so um, we wrote 
the life he never expected when probably Zeke, our oldest, was about six and Anna was about four and we'd just been through a really turbulent time in our life where our older two children, who'd perhaps been a little slow to gain milestones, both of their development, one after another, went into reverse and they lost the speech and the motor skills and the social skills that they had gained um, and became very anxious and vulnerable and and unstable in many ways. Uh, our, our middle child, Anna, has also got epilepsy. Uh, so over the course of that two-year period, really, our lives just felt like they just everything was just flung up in the air. And we wrote the book as a response to that. It's deliberately raw um, about how to um, cope and come to terms and mm. um, still have a relationship with God when something completely unexpected in your life happens mm. uh, since we wrote the book we've also had another child so we've now got three children so our youngest um sam is now four and actually our older two are 10 and 11 now so it's wow. it's um it's been a little while since the book came out it has and I, I know so many people have been so grateful for your book and have been so comforted and encouraged by it and i think in part it's because of just the authenticity and the, you say, the rawness that you're writing in which doesn't seem to be common, uh, particularly among not well, particularly among Christian leaders, let's say, where, who we're so often used to hearing from platforms, um, where they're often presenting the finished article mm. and here's here's what I got through and here's all the things I've learned. Whereas I think what makes your book and your story and journey so refreshing and encouraging for people in a, in a way, in a strange way, is that it's it's stuff that you're processing and learning on the road and you feel more like a, a fellow traveller and companion of others. Is that something that came naturally to you or do you find that level of honesty and authenticity, vulnerability hard? And how, do you, how, did, you, how did you manage to do that and put it on paper? I think when we were actually writing it, both of us really tried to resist the temptation for it to be therapeutic for us. But in retrospect, I think actually it was therapeutic and that's no bad thing um, to write and to share our experiences. At the time, that actually felt really natural. I think when you've made yourself vulnerable, though, afterwards, you often... Um, you often feel extra vulnerable mm. in retrospect. And so that is a challenge of when you're sharing quite personal stuff. Uh, the wisdom of what you share, we kind of talk about it in concentric circles where you want to share certain things only with your closest friends um, or perhaps your family or your spouse. And then after that, perhaps with a, uh, with other friends or wider family. And after that, um, with life group or church family and um and it's really hard to get that balance right. Mm. And I hope that we I hope that we did. I think also in retrospect, there are times I've looked at the book and thought, oh, this really feels like exaggerating. It wasn't that bad. Mm. And then other times that we have a really bad day and I think, no, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, Brené Brown talks about uh, the, the concept of a vulnerability hangover. That once you've made yourself vulnerable, like you said, you then do feel mm. extra vulnerable. Like, oh, no, what did I share? How how did you manage that hangover or, or that experience of feeling so like, I mean, you basically, you could have had the experience of being like a, a fish in a goldfish bowl now. Everyone's looking in and knows what's going on in your life. Yeah, and I think you have to, I really struggle with that. I've never heard that vulnerability hangover 
term, but I, I need to look into it because that is definitely what it is. And I know that's really common from other people, particularly if they've been sharing about mental health or something deeply personal on a platform. Afterwards, you do feel that, that sense of vulnerability hangover. And at some point, I think you've got to accept, I've, I'm trying to learn to accept the imperfection of what you shared. You can never share the whole story. You can never share in any one interview or one book or one sermon every facet mm. of everything that went on you can't do everybody justice mm. and um and you've got to come to terms with the imperfection of what you share and trust that that's what everybody else is doing as well mm. Mm. um and also we're kind of you know we're works in progress things change over time my friend's an art teacher and she was saying she was teaching other teachers how to um teach young children how to draw and she was saying the golden rule is that you can never let them have the rubber they have to if they get something wrong it has to become part of the picture so if they're drawing a horse and the horse's leg one leg's bigger than the other then they have to draw something to add to the picture to make that make sense but you don't give them a rubber and I think that's true whenever you're making yourself vulnerable or whenever you're sharing life or parenting there's just some really helpful wisdom there of going God, actually, you're a work in progress and God does something even with the mistakes that you've made. And as tempting as it is to go for a reprint or to correct every blog post that you said something slightly stupid in or every post, every podcast where maybe you overshared, um, you've got to leave it and trust that God's going to do something with it to bless people. Wow, that is beautiful right there. This is why I want this conversation. Wisdom just oozes out of you. And what a lovely idea that we're never allowed to have the eraser, the rubber to, to correct our mistakes, mm. which is probably a healthy antidote to the Instagram culture of only presenting your best self. Because, of course, the opposite to that is what you sometimes see is people self-pity sharing, um, yeah. sharing things for the sake of um, having some level of comfort. Um, but but you seem to walk that line between um, not erring, not kind of not, not oversharing for the sake of self-pity and they're there, um, and, you know, the opposite of making everything look perfect. Mm. Have you got any advice on how to how to hold that line well? I think it's, that's a real challenge. And I think in the church, the culture is valuing authenticity and vulnerability. And that's a really positive thing. And in the church, we're increasingly valuing vulnerability and authenticity. But we need to make sure that's never an excuse not to repent of our sin. So we don't boast um, in our continuing in our sin. So we need to make sure that where we need to repent, we repent. And also on the other side, that we don't fall into victimhood because we're not victims. We're imperfect. We're jars of clay and all those things, but we're, but we're not victims. Mm. And sometimes we can try and gain credibility, extra credibility um, through almost drifting towards victimhood, um, which isn't, I don't think, what Jesus' intention is, mm. is for us. That's really good. That's really helpful. Uh, well, you know, what, a lot of what you wrote about in the book and you've experienced is having to come to terms with change, massive change from how you thought your life was going to go and what you thought parenting was going to look like. And that's, a, you know, all of us have been through a massive series of changes over the past nine months or so as we've all had to adjust to living in a world with this level of uncertainty. So I thought it'd be, it'd be really helpful just to get you to share some of your insights and comments on how to help people process change, accept change and grow through the 
yeah through the uncertainty mm. yeah I really struggle with change I think my so my older two children part of their aut- autistic autism really is them being quite rigid about plan making and even in parenting them I'm naturally inclined that way anyway but in parenting them I've become more and more like that as well I like my routines I'm quite a rigid thinker um, and I really struggle with um with unexpected change I think um Realising that God saw it coming is really helpful. And I, I love the word um, provide because you have pro before, vid, to see. So he saw it before. So he has seen it before and he has he will provide. He saw it coming and he has got, like, there's a ram in the thicket. <laughs> there is a plan that he has that you didn't see coming, that you didn't know about. Mm. Um, I found, particularly with the children... That's been the le- that's been the lesson in terms of coming to terms with special needs and the ways in which our life looks different than how we had expected that it might look. That God has so graciously, at just the right time, given us very practical and very spiritual gifts that have been a bit like in the Hunger Games when the just the gift comes at just the right time because He saw the crisis coming. I think that has given me some strength to face lockdown. Mm. That again, it's another crisis we never saw coming, but that he has given the gifts and he will this coming winter give us the gifts that we need. He will provide Mm. um, for everything that we need. Mm. Uh, But it is definitely a challenge, I think, coming to terms um, with change. And also I think it's a challenge to be quite self-aware as you deal with that, to, to know, okay, what are the things that make me tick? Uh, at what sort of zone am I in right now? Am I in the survival zone? Am I in a filling up zone? Am I in like a storing up zone where I need to be really feeding on the word of God for what's about to happen? If that makes any and sense. Presumably the, the antidote or the tools that you use changes depends on which zone you're in. Mm. So are there any just tips or advice that you can help people think through working out yeah, what zone am I in? What do I need? Because mm. you know, that pro- that solution is not going to work for me right now because I've got a, I'm in a different place. So I can't hear that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were in the most tricky section, really, of uh, when our older two were little and they were very, very demanding, had a high level of need, uh, we talked about being in the survival zone. And in the survival zone, it's a win if everybody showers, everybody eats, um if you can just say to god help 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 that's a win that's sometimes what relationship with god looks like in the survival zone and ideally you don't want to stay in the survival zone because it's tough and you don't remember anybody's birthday and um your fridge is really disgusting and all those things so you don't want to stay in the survival zone but that's real life isn't it um if it's like a bullseye we've got the survival zone and then after that we've got filling up so once you've moved out of that, it's you've got to recognise that you've um, you've expended a lot of your spiritual resources, your physical resources, um, a lot of your energy is gone. Um, so in more in the filling up, we start to think about eating healthier, tackling some behaviours in the children that need to be tackled, uh, doing exercise, and beginning to actually get into a really a much more consistent bible reading worship prayer and going being much more in a life group involved at church all those things that's really helpful for filling up and then there's kind of concentric concentric circle after that 
is storing up, which is much more like Joseph, really, where he starts to, he can see that there's a famine coming in the future, that he might be back in the survival zone in the future. And so he starts to make storehouses of grain. And that's where you think about really going much deeper in the word, um, look, really looking at uh, things like um, fasting and um, having a much more dedicated prayer life and just ways in which you can store up for the next time you unexpectedly go into the um, into the survival zone. And so it's kind of, I think that's always a fluid thing. That's, you know, that's not a strict rule, but that's helped me in terms of naming where I am and what I can expect of myself and having a little bit of compassion mm. on myself as well. Mm. Um, I think through lockdown, we've probably all moved in, in and out of those, um, in and out of all of those zones at some point. Mm. That's so helpful. And and I think it, it strikes me that part of the big challenge for us is, is the dent to our pride to accept and acknowledge I'm in survival mode. I'm not a god. I'm I'm not superhuman, and uh, coming to terms with our own creatureliness and our own limitations and weakness. Mm. That's a very humbling experience, mm. and mm. it's one that often we don't want to tell people about. Or we don't want to acknowledge because mm. we all want to be not just in the storing up zone. We want to be in the giving away to others zone. Yeah. We want to be the one that people depend on, and you know we have all these prophetic words and promises about you're going to be an oak of righteousness, and people yeah. are going to come and get shelter and shade under your branches. You yeah. think oh, I want to be that pillar in the community, but there are times of just self-realization where you think, "No, oh, I'm I'm not that right now." Um, yeah. How how have you thought about that process? Yeah, I think it's it's much more humbling to receive the food rotor than to be on the food rotor, isn't it? We all want to mm. be on the meal, you know, contributing meals to other people. We don't want to be the one in need of the meal rotor. <laughs> um, and yeah, it is absolutely. It's really humbling, and um, I think that's a yeah that's a challenge to cut to um, to come to terms with. Mm. Oh, I mean, to be fair, it's, it's nice being on the meal rotor too. <laughs> um, so you mentioned providing and, and knowing that God's a provider and that he sees before what's coming. Do you have any specific examples over the last um, few months that you can just you, you think of? And, and do you write down and record examples when they happen to help remind you when you're back in a zone of you know discouragement, perhaps? Mm. Yeah, I'm nowhere near as consistent enough at writing stuff down, but that's such a helpful thing to do. Um, I think you're asking specifically within the last few months, mm, yeah. as in, instead of in the last few years. Yeah, I want to get to the nitty gritty. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, like I mentioned about the phases that the kids have been in, um, just working in terms of the indoor activity. So it was really practical. Um, so when we went into lockdown... Our daughter Anna, who is usually physically very tactile and physical and needs a lot of um, uh, like sensory input. So, so Anna's 10, um, but she is, um, she's bigger than our oldest. She's on my lap most of the time. She wants to, her developmental age would be around 12 months. She wants to stroke your face and mouth objects and some of those things. She does have some speech. But she just got into this phase where all she wanted to do was to be read stories in her bed, which was incredibly lockdown friendly. Our, our, our boys who are 11 and 4, the, their point in which their relationship was when, when lockdown hit meant that they um, suddenly were on a very similar developmental plane as well. And they just wanted to race cars along the kitchen floor, which was doable in lockdown. And I just think that's a really... There are sometimes you can see the grace of God in the phases that your children are in. They have become more demanding since. But God's just... Yeah, God's been kind to us, even with a space about two weeks before lockdown happened. 
um, I decided that I wanted to start writing again. And uh, so we made a study in our house, which we had never had before. Um, that study obviously immediately got requisitioned for Andrew's use, but we had a place that he could work quietly. Uh, so that, that, was, that was okay. And uh, we discovered a new walk, which we did the same, the same, basically we did the same routine every day for six weeks because the children had lost every other sense of routine. So in order to create a new routine, it had to be really practiced. So we would literally, we'd do car races, we'd make a smoothie, we'd eat an apple, we'd have lunch, we'd watch something, we'd go on a walk in the downs, and it was the same walk that we did. Mm. And we'd just release Anna into a field of sheep. <laughs> and we just found this walk that was safe for her mm. and where we weren't going to bump into other people and because she is no respecter of the two-metre rule. Mm. Uh, we found somewhere that worked. And actually, in strange ways, actually has really strengthened... Um, our family life mm. and routine uh, uh, as I understand for, for children with autism routine is very important um, how have you found routine to be very important for yourself and where does routine become very hard and heavy when it is so repetitive yeah I think there's a balance isn't there because I like routine but yeah there is a challenge once it's exactly the same thing when particularly our daughter senses increased, an increasing amount of chaos around her. So, for example, if we go on holiday, so we're in a different house, a different country perhaps, um, with different people, uh, she almost, the way her coping mechanism with that is to become extremely routined. And so she will read the same book over and over and over. And a couple of years ago um, in France, I just, it was the book is Dogger, which is just this beautiful Shirley Hughes book. So thankfully, it's actually a decent book. <laughs> Even so, by about day eight of the holidays, I was just in pieces. And I it was like a triggering effect where I thought, I, I just can't, I can't read this book um, again. So there is definitely a line where routine becomes um, quite a painful thing. And where also sometimes we can become beholden to our own routines and coping mechanisms. So there's certain books that Anna has when she goes to bed but we get into, we reach a bit of a blockade in the routine where she will have her fingers in her ears and she'll be crying, but I have to read the book. She doesn't want to read the book, but she has to read the book to go to sleep that because she's so routined um, that she thinks she won't be able to go to sleep unless she's gone through this routine that she doesn't even like. And actually, that's, I found that so that was a really helpful picture of us in our sin sometimes where we get trapped by our own coping mechanisms and we believe that it has to be that extra glass of wine or it has to be viewing that particular material online or whatever it is where we can become very beholden by our own routines that aren't necessarily positive. So I think there's discipline in terms of Bible reading, there's discipline in terms of godly routine, but actually it's a challenge to me as well to go, are there routines in my life or sin routines that I'm now actually beholden to mm. um, a bit like she can be mm. yeah. and actually like you said about uh, you said about Luther at the beginning that we so quickly become legalists and we end up thinking this routine that was meant to bring me life I'm now relying on it to bring me justification and yeah. righteousness as well but I, I'd love to to know and I'm sure people listening would really appreciate just an insight as well into what are some of the uh, what are some of the routines and habits that bring Rachel Wilson life and joy and are some of the the things that you go to to help you transition perhaps from survival to okay I can mm. actually start feeding again um, zone 
Yeah, so we're really lucky to live on the southeast coast. So creation is a routine. Um, walking in creation, cycling in creation. We've got an enormous golden retriever who needs lots of walks. Um, so actually being part of looking and literally beholding what God has done in creation um, is a routine to me that is incredibly life-giving. I think recently some other routines that have um, I found really um, practically helpful. It's taken me about the last, till the last two years to go, endorphins are a gift of grace from God and exercise and the ability of exercise to help clear your mind, um, that's, a, that's a gift of grace. That's, a, that's quite a spiritual thing. It's an important thing that God's made us, um, made us to enjoy. So for me, I love swimming outside. Um, so doing backstroke, swimming outside, looking in the at the sea. Swim <laughs> I do, in the sea. No, no, no. I do swim in the sea in the <laughs> summer. No, I, I, there's an outside pool that I go to and um, I do backstroke. I look up at the sky and I can pray as I'm doing that. And so there are some that's a really life giving routine as well. I'm just bit, felt really challenged recently about memorising scripture, which I find very difficult. Um, but that routine of that actually is really life giving. Um, that's something I've. I, I'm quite new to, but I'm I'm trying at the moment. Well, I guess because you're having to go over in your mind over and over and over again to try to get it into your mind, are you? So you're chewing, yeah. chewing the themes and the thoughts. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the challenges I found of lockdown is that my house is often not a very quiet, peaceful place. So I become quite reliant on coffee shops for Bible reading, for reading Christian books, and I found that quite challenging. And that's definitely a routine that I am like struggling with transitioning. In, in this um in this new season mm. what i love about your answer there though is that um you acknowledge some of your routines and habits aren't quote unquote spiritual yeah. they're just they're they're recognizing you're a human creature yeah. made by god and so therefore you need to lean into rhythms and disciplines that are just good for you as a as a person is that yeah. quite an intentional part of your answer yeah absolutely i think it's uh, yeah that's really helpful I found it really life-giving reading Jen Wilkins books over the last few years her book None Like Him particularly talks about all the ways that we are different from God and why that's a good thing that's been really formative for me because I've realized God has made me as a human being with certain limitations I do need to eat well I do need to exercise I do need some some time to myself to process emotions. <laughs> that is completely normal and um, as he's designed me to be as well. So I think that, yeah, that almost that um, boundary between the secular and the spiritual, if that's become a bit more blurred in a positive way mm. over the last few years. Mm, yeah, and I guess I kind of would want to ask as well, what, do you, what would you say to, to mums and dads who are really in the trenches of physical parenting with the little years perhaps or even the emotional years of the, the adolescence and this the exhaustion of that but who who find the idea of spiritual disciplines prayer and bible reading just they feel guilty because they know they should go there but there's very that requires a lot of emotional engagement and effort on their part that they don't feel they have how have you both kind of brought yourself to places where you think no i know the word of god's good for me i know prayer's good for me but what do you do when you're not in that place, you know, when you don't desire God, to quote the title of John Piper's book. Um, what advice would you give to people in that season and situation? Yeah, I think we feed our loves. So actually, the, our love can grow dim for God. Our love can grow cold. And we need to feed it with those habits. Um, but I would, I would encourage people in that, particularly in that season of life, to dwell on and to seek out in 
in worship songs and in scripture and in Christian books, the grace of God. Because actually the grace of God will be food for your soul. And yes, there is emotional engagement that takes with um, with engaging with any scripture. or um, But actually just I, I find that beginning, particularly during lockdown, beginning by singing is really good for my soul. Because I am in the middle of lockdown. What was would have come out of my mouth spontaneously might not have been truth. And it might not have been love for God. It would have been much messier than that but in worship songs we're actually given like liturgy we're given the words to speak out and as we're singing even we're feeding our souls with truth um and i just i would i i found that really helpful even joining um things like come and sing with me on a a weekday morning something ollie knight started i found that really helpful i need to begin the day by singing to feed myself with truth and also to go on to read the bible but spending time in books like ephesians romans um the psalms are fantastic because the psalms are so real and they will verbalize every emotion that you might be feeling you will find in the psalms mm. and uh, it's not psalms are great because as well they're not something you need to follow a particular line of thought for um, for three hours, you actually have got something that's food for your soul and that sums up your emotions and brings you quickly before God. Mm. Um, and that's liturgy that we've been given just to read it aloud, to sing it aloud mm. and to remind ourselves of truth. Mm. What role and how have you managed to maintain the involvement in a community outside, a community like the church? And what advice would you give to people who are in a, a difficult season and are trying to self-feed like you're describing but the idea of being part of a church community just seems like an extra effort that they haven't mm. got the appetite for. How have you still managed to maintain a love for and a need for an involvement in a local church? If you've got an opportunity now to be an in-person service, take it. Um, because I think um, I've been really blessed. Our church in Eastbourne has just started doing a seven o'clock Sunday evening one. And that's just been really great. It's probably the most engaged I've been in church for years in terms I'm just not surrounded by children. I'm really fortunate I've got someone who can be at home and look after the children at seven o'clock on a Sunday evening. And I know that's not true for everyone. Uh, but in-person meetings now, if they are available, take the opportunity, um, if you can, for community in that sense. Even though it's imperfect, even mm. though we're masked up and it's not perfect, um, take that opportunity. Also, a few years ago, I just really struggled going to evening life groups. I was just exhausted by the evening and, and uh, I struggled to wind down afterwards and get babysitters and all those things. About three years ago, I started going to a daytime life group and that's just changed. That's made a huge impact on my spiritual life, just really practical. And at the time, it felt actually quite a sacrifice because it was a nursery morning. And um, I w I'm fortunate I haven't had to work as much in the last few years, uh, but to give up a nursery morning when it's your only child-free mm. time felt really hard. But it has fed my soul and it's vital. We're not meant to do Christian life alone. And so often, particularly at the moment, it become, become, become a Jesus and me hotline to God with nobody else involved. And that is just not how God has created us to be. Community is part of knowing God and a part of sharpening each other and getting to know him better. Mm. And we can't exclude community. It can't just be a podcast long term. I know that's all got us all through. And podcasts are good, we're doing one like <laughs> But it can't just be that. We've got to involve other people in our faith as well. Mm. And and that, you know, we come back to the, the conversation at the start about authenticity and vulnerability. 
and there's got to be people that you're actually talking to and sharing your life with and not many people will be writing their lives down on paper and page um but you're right having that courage to to talk to people and to involve other people in your mm. life um I saw, I saw a video that was made uh, that you did recently several months ago now um where you quoted from Spurgeon that you've learned to kiss the wave that throws you on the rock of ages mm. and I just thought that was so encouraging and inspiring um for those who haven't seen the video can you give us a, a premise of what you're talking about there and uh yeah what your encouragement would be from that yeah that was a quote I only came across I think when things were really tough with our oldest two and it made me really angry the first time I saw it I think I saw it on Twitter someone quoting it you're right um Spurgeon I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me on the rock of ages and at that point, Anna was regressing and it was much worse than the regression that Zeke had lived through. And she'd, like her walking had become unstable. It was just awful. And I remember thinking, God, I will never, I will never kiss this wave. I will never kiss this wave of regression. Um, and it's been like a journey over the last few years and I am not there. I wouldn't say I've learned to kiss the wave of regression. Even now she's... 10 that throws me on the rock of ages but I am learning to kiss that wave and some days I get it better than others um, but I can see with time the wisdom of God and that his plan is better than the, my plan and that took a while to get to that point but I can also see the love and the grace and the kindness that Anna's life in particular has drawn out of the people around her. Um, in terms of a currency of love and kindness and mercy and compassion in our community, sometimes our most vulnerable children can draw those qualities out from people in an incredible way. We've, um, one of the saddest losses in some ways of not taking Anna to church to in-person meetings at the moment is now I realise what a loss that will be for our local church, for her not to be there. Huge loss. And I hope that as time goes on, we can find ways around it. Um, but she is increasing the circulation of all of those fruits of the spirit in community, in church life, in our home life. Um, and in that way, I find I can kiss the wave um, because I'm not sure that would have been true in a different way. Mm. With with the, you know, my plan might have been easier, but his plan is better. Wow. Um, do you have any, just kind of developing that that comment there about Anna's Anna being a gift to the local church and the way local churches need um, people like Anna, um, people with disabilities. Do you have any comments or observations about? the church culture in general when it comes to thinking about and catering for and appreciating disability? Mm. I think I'm not, I'm not a guru on this at all. There are lots of people who are way, way ahead. Um, I actually think, unless you're a mega church, which I don't, not, our churches aren't, then I think the best way to cater for people is as individual people. We don't need to come up with a logo we don't need necessarily even a ministry or a ministry leader. What we do is we need to face and love and appreciate what the per that individual person in front of us has to offer. 
and to have open arms towards them. So we have, um, we actually do have a special needs group. In normal times, we have a special needs group, which my oldest son has got a huge amount out of, and that's that's worked really well for him. Um, Anna, on the other hand, has has a one to one, and she has the same one to one every week. So that's a huge commitment. And church life would not have worked for me um, without that person who came forwards. And Anna's uncontainable, so she can open any door now. So. So on a normal Sunday, she would roam the building and um, she would storm the stage at certain at certain points and she would interrupt preaches um, and all those things. But I knew I knew that the people in the room, there wasn't judgment. There was appreciation. People. She's got very distinctive noises that she makes and. People afterwards would say, oh, I just love it when I hear her because I think Anna's here. I can't see her, but I can hear her. Um, so as a community of people, we've got uh, just that love, acceptance uh, and meeting the individual needs of the person that we see in front of us, not feeling the pressure uh, to have forethought of every possible situation because every child, um, every child with autism is is very different from each other. My two children both have autism. They are very, very different from each other. So, we, yeah, we need to face the person that's facing us. Mm, that's really helpful. Um, and I think living with and having dis um, disability in our communities is so vital because almost like lockdowns taught us, we we default to want, towards wanting to create perfection, but perfection is actually ultimately not real, but it's also quite stale and cold and mm. feelingless um and as you're saying i think there's there's the interruptions to our attempts at perfection when someone storms the stage or interrupts mm. something or makes noises or does something that we didn't plan for and that grates with our sense of control and perfection mm. but actually you're right it's a helpful way rather like the pandemic has been interrupting our attempts to play god yeah. and say no no this, this is life this is the world life under the sun and you're supposed to learn to love this world yeah. not try to always create a, a vision of an alternative way of being um how have you i know in the early days i think you wrote about this in the book as well how have you learnt to how did you learn to cope with some of the embarrassment that you felt in the early stages of Anna and Zeke's interruptions to normal civilized you know attempts mm. at perfection we might say yeah I mean I cringe when I think back to those early days and I know I was just coming to terms with it but the um I just felt mortified and I remember I just I'd, I'd put my hand over her mouth I'd and um I'd, in me, I'd take her out of the room um straight away it took a long time for me to relax and I think that's normal in terms of coming to terms it was a grief at that point that I needed to handle of, of having of being faced with a life that I didn't expect uh, but other people that's where the church helps you that's where community with other people help because they're constantly affirming the value of that person to you and affirming the contribution that they make to church life um, there was no way as a person I'm I'm more naturally, I would, I wouldn't, I'd want to hide what I was going through more naturally. And the children did not give me the choice of doing that because they were just really loud <laughs> <laughs> and, and really physical. So like they were running away from me the whole time. Like it was, it was humbling, but it was also humiliating. Mm. So um, it was, 
it really it did batter my pride and things that they do still do embarrass me um sometimes but over time you start to heal and you start to see the beauty of um the beauty of the mess the beauty in the mess really mm. uh, yeah rather than the curated um perfection that we all kind of naturally crave mm. wow any um any other thoughts or things that you kind of are thinking about that you think i would like to mention this or share that i think the only other thing i'd say is just that to encourage people who are out there who are facing a death really in terms of a grief or a sense of being hit with something that's not inspect that they haven't expected or self-death of having to die to dreams that they had um that's where we definitely were a few years ago but it's not where the gospel leaves us so death and resurrection are woven throughout christian lives and parenting in particular is always there are multiple deaths during parenting you have to die to your own pride and you have to um die to being able to control somebody else completely and to being them being exactly how you would like them to be but death and resurrection are just woven throughout the Christian life. So God brings life. So if you're facing death at the moment, just be comforted that life has to follow death. It's just the story of Jesus and it's the way the Christian life works. Um, you know, hope comes in the morning. Um, and, and I know that's easy for me to say and not to know what people are facing. Things much more challenging than what we faced. Uh, but hope does come in the morning. And uh, resurrection life is always waiting for us mm. here and forever. Mm. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and for your wisdom and for your example. And uh, you're a gift to us. Oh, thank you, James. This you. has been fun. Thank you. Wow. I mean, I really enjoyed that conversation. Rachel's honesty, but also her commitment to truth and godliness, I think is a really powerful combination. I thought her encouragement on how to integrate people with disability into church life was especially helpful. And actually, if you have any further suggestions on that or guests that you think would make for a good interview and conversation around that subject, I'd love to hear from you. Please do get in touch. There's a lot to think about from that conversation. Well, next week, we are diving into church history and asking Dr. Andy Johnston, who has a PhD in Reformation Studies, some of his reflections on the pandemic from the perspective of church history. Here's a clip for you. On my desk in my office, uh, I have a uh, Tyndale New Testament facsimile, an exact replica, and I have it there for a reason, because I want to be reminded every day that Christians in England laid down their lives to give me and you the platform from which we build. Well, until then, stay engaged, press into God in prayer, and let's keep encouraging one another to trust our Father in difficult times. God bless you, and see you all next time. Take care.